At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What makes great customer experience? Michael talks about this in in, uh, some of his speeches he gives where he believes, and I, I think this really rings true for me, that you know, brands, great brands are like pointless paintings where it's all about these little details. And you could have a detail or two that's, you know, smidge and is, is wrong. And, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the painting, it's not going to ruin you know, the overall painting. But it's all of those little details that make up, you know, this grand masterpiece that is a brand. Um, so the importance of details is critically necessary when you're talking about something like customer experience and a brand that's going to really resonate with people. And if you have the right attention to those details, uh, everything else kind of follows. That's something I really you know, learned in spades from, from Michael. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. This show is all about insights and explores how transformational moments of awakening have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthroughs teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is David Fields, co-founder and CEO of Wander, an innovative internet service provider startup. Prior to founding Wander, David spent much of his career in the investment and acquisition space. He worked with Michael Eisner and Bob Iger while he was at Disney and was the sole analyst on the Pixar acquisition. He spent seven years as the head of acquisitions and investments for the Tornante company, where he once again worked with Michael Eisner. On the show, we learn what insights he gained while having proximity to these business titans. He counts Eisner as a personal mentor and shares many valuable learnings he picked up while working with him. David shares why he values intellectual curiosity and reveals his approach to research. We also learn why Walt Disney himself valued creativity more than anything else and why Michael Eisner believes great brands are like a pointillist painting. David has a unique perspective on luck and serendipity and reveals why he feels they played a role in his success. We also dive into his learnings as an entrepreneur, including where he believes the most valuable feedback comes from, why he uses a business in a box approach, why putting money into something doesn't always correlate to the outcome, and why he believes it's better to be unique at something than to be the best at something. David provides a well of insights and I'm so excited to share them on this episode of Inside Out. David Fields, welcome to Inside Out. Thanks for having me, Billy. I'm so excited and thank you for hosting me. We're here at your beautiful office in downtown Culver City. And tell me about this building. I mean, I walk in and I feel like I'm walking in City Hall. What's going on? Yeah, it's an amazing place here. I mean, we're here at the Helms Bakery, uh, which is just an awesome complex. Uh, I mean, the history I I didn't know much of before us having an office space here, really from the beginning of the company. It's incredible. I mean, you have uh, the Olympics were, uh, you know, apparently kind of uh, there was an athlete village, you know, right around here with Helms really? before 
before Coca-Cola, they were a sponsor of the Olympics. I mean, it's what year the Olympic rings are part of the Helms Bakery uh, displays out there. I forget when that was back in like the original LA Olympics in the early 1900s. Oh, right, like maybe like 36 or something yeah, like that so. way back yeah. when. Yeah, amazing. Well, you, you landed in a good spot and I am so thrilled to get a chance to have this conversation with you and get to know you a little bit better. You have an amazing backstory. So why don't we start there? If you could kind of sure. just give us a flavor of the David Fields story. Sure. So I'll start with, uh, you know, growing up. Yeah, I was born and raised in South Florida area, West Palm Beach. Uh, and you know, as a young kid, I was always you know fascinated, like a lot of kids, I think, with movies and television, and just got immersed kind of in that world. Also, really had a had a love for uh, like architecture and real estate, and had the opportunity to go study it at Harvard undergrad, studied economics there. Did a lot in looking at kind of urban planning and, and thinking about you know real estate design at a city level. Was fortunate to to get to study under a professor there, Ed Glazer, who. You know, wrote one of the you know the main books called Triumph of the City about urban planning and and some of the the challenges and and things to think through there. Uh, and looking back on it in retrospect, I think I've always been interested in kind of the customer experience. You know, kind of the way that we interact with the world, whether that's you know in the physical world or if it's in you know what at the time was more content. And I think now is you know more in the the digital products and, and services that we uh, you know we engage with. So I had a unique opportunity coming out of undergrad to go work at Disney, maybe the best in the business at understanding customers and and delivering yeah. on customer experience. So so jumped at that chance and uh, got to work in a, a very interesting role in the company. It's called strategic planning. It was an M and A and strategy group at corporate. Got to work across a lot of the different businesses and. You know, had uh, had an amazing experience. Uh, you know, starting my career there, then went and spent some time in in real estate, doing development and and investing, which I had a passion for. But the world of digital started to explode and really uh, disrupt the media space, and I got very excited about what was happening there. Had an opportunity to reconnect with uh, some ex colleagues from Disney, including the former CEO uh, Michael Eisner. He had started a company called Tornante, which was a direct investing uh, company. You know, focused on uh, digital media and consumer businesses. And they brought me on to uh, lead up a lot of this early stage investing that uh, we were starting to do. And I ended up spending about eight years there running uh, investments across you know, the whole portfolio from early stage to later stage private equity deals. I uh, had an amazing time there. And that kind of led me into launching Wander, which is the startup that I've been running for the last year and a half. What an amazing story. And not least of which is coming out of college landing a gig at Disney before getting that gig. What did you think about Disney? Was it, were you targeting Disney or did it happen in another way? How did you wind up there? Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, like a lot of things, I think some, some good fortune and also, you know, some kind of passion and interest that, that aligned with it. But you know, Disney was one of the, you know, companies that was recruiting at, at the school around, you know, this position and, and a couple others Growing up in Florida, you know, I had, I had been to the theme parks, uh, you know, a number of times and, and was definitely a, a fan of the experience that they, you know, were so incredible at delivering on. You know, luckily, you know, this was a, a company that was kind of out there engaging with our campus and was top of my list of where I wanted to go and work and was fortunate enough to have, have that opportunity. And then how did it wind up that you got your start in the strategic planning part of the company? Obviously, you had the Harvard background, the econ background. What was it that allowed you to get positioned in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that group, you know, from my perspective, it was 
you know, such a unique place to learn. You know, I've been able to, you know, now, you know, mentor or advise, you know, some people who have had the opportunity to work in that group and coming out of college or coming out of a few years of work, you know, they would uh, also recruit out of consulting and banking and, and a few years of experience. It's an incredible opportunity because you're dropped into the corporate environment, uh, but getting to work really closely with all of the different businesses that comprise of the company. Uh, so I had the opportunity to work closely with senior management at ABC and at ESPN and ultimately, you know, was the sole analyst on the Pixar acquisition, you know, working very closely with, you know, with, uh, you know, Bob Iker and, and Tom Staggs at the time. So, uh, so fascinating, uh, you know, first learning experience, uh, you know, long hours, hard work, but, uh, yeah, but an unbelievable learning experience and a breadth of stuff that you just couldn't see in a lot of other roles. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of insights that arose as a result of you being there. And as you know, this show is all about insights. So why don't we start and just kind of let's dive in on that front. What would be some of the insights that you gleaned from your time at Disney? Obviously, Bob Iger, Michael Eisner, you know, working with these titans of the business world that they're just, their names are synonymous with incredible growth and innovative thinking from a corporate standpoint. Obviously, you having a first row seat, especially with Pixar being the sole analyst. I mean, I'm just fascinated. So let's dive in. Well, I guess some stuff that kind of jumps to mind maybe from my early career at Disney. And, and then I spent a lot you know, more time getting to, to learn from Michael Eisner, which was you know, an incredible opportunity. Um, I was there for his last year at Disney and then you know, Bob Iger's first couple of years and on the Pixar acquisition, got to work with Bob and, and kind of a small team to acquire that business. And I think what was fascinating then was kind of thinking about, you know, the strategy of, of Disney going forward um, and Pixar now with, you know, 2020 hindsight kicked off this acquisition of, you know, just fantastic IP that wasn't Disney created that kind of came from outside of the company. And Bob was, I think, had the, the right strategy to say, you know, we need to be more of a acquirer of things and push them through all of what, what Disney does really well, but not be the sole producer of all of this content. So Pixar was the first, then Marvel, you know, then Lucas. And strategic planning, I mean, the name you know, says a bit of it. I mean, strategy is kind of at the center of how you know, we would think through acquisitions, how we would think through positioning of different businesses, um, and coming at these opportunities or, or challenges in businesses from that strategic perspective was uh, was something that I, I really gleaned from from that experience. It's interesting because what, what I'm hearing from you is that Bob Iger had the foresight to recognize that Disney, as amazing as Disney was, because it's not like it was a new company or hadn't done a lot on its own. It already had so much creation and innovation under its belt. But instead of thinking, I just you know, as a leader, as Bob from Bob Iger's mind frame, instead of thinking we're just going to do everything in house. Instead, he's, he's looking elsewhere to pull in other creative teams and organizations and very much so expand the, the offerings. It's easy now to look back and say how amazing those decisions were. But at the, at the time you, you may not have known that it would be as good of a decision as it was. I'm curious with Pixar specifically, as you were analyzing the pros and cons, 
was it all pros or did you see some cons and how did you ultimately, I mean, you're, it sounds like you were one of the people, if you're the sole analyst giving advice to Bob Iger, I mean, how many people could say that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it was definitely not all positives and you know, the big, you know, kind of glaring negative and challenge was Pixar was a company that had made seven films. All seven of them were gigantic hits. Um, and, you know, phenomenal brands from Toy Story to Finding Nemo, you know, everything we, we kind of know from the company. But the valuation that they wanted that the public markets was already expecting, you know, Disney or someone was going to buy them for uh, was at, you know, astronomical levels by kind of any standard. And a $7 billion price tag for a company that had made seven films was unprecedented and um, you know, was uh, tough to justify. Even though at a core strategic level, I think our whole team understood the imperative and, and why this was uh, such an important acquisition for the company. Um, yeah, but funny enough, and I, I, yeah, I think Bob talks a little bit about this in his newest book. Um, yeah, but there are certain things as a public company you have to do um, you know, to justify these large acquisitions. Like, you know, banks have to get involved and say, you know, this is a price that's kind of justifiable. And that was difficult to do. And now in retrospect, you know, Pixar was an obvious success and, you know, jump-started this kind of revolution um, over at Disney. Uh, but at the time, it was pretty difficult to, you know, wrap your head around, you know, what we were actually paying for. I think what, what sticks with me is, you know, kind of understanding that, you know, strategy, you know, kind of sticking to what's core about the reason you're doing something. You know, part of the the brilliance of, of Pixar, too, is going back to like Walt's original vision. One of my favorite you know, diagrams is, and it's gotten pretty famous at this point, it's Walt Disney's strategy for the Walt Disney Company, which at the center has, you know, creative films and, you know, that creativity and the production of film and theatrical drives theme parks. It drives television. It drives everything else around the edges. And we just went back to that strategy of, look, you know, we're not the only ones creating great films anymore or great animation, which was so you know, central Disney. We needed to broaden, uh, you know, what, you know, the uh, pool of IP that we were putting through everything else that Disney does great. Yeah. And Walt's insight, if you will, that the the creative the the innovation is the center point and then ancillary and, and kind of on the extremities of that are all the things that it feeds into whether that be theme parks all you know television uh, programs and, and and channels and all the things that disney now has as part of its overall everything that, that it has to offer it's really interesting to look back from your vantage point be able to say that you had a role in helping see that vision through. And so curious, you know, working with, as I, as I called them before, these Titans, what did you learn from them? You could speak, you know, Eisner or, or Iger both are both. I'm curious if you could maybe give us a few things that stand out as like, wow, that was a really good learning or takeaway that you have from, from them. Yeah, well, I mean, I was fortunate enough to spend, uh, you know, almost eight years working really closely with, with Michael, um, and yeah, he's he's been an unbelievable mentor to me in my career. So worked much more closely with with him than you know than Bob as a as a young analyst, you know, working on uh, an acquisition with him. Uh, but I think the thing that kind of sticks out most with you know with Michael is this attention to detail um, and this ability to kind of go micro, at, like to to go macro, if that makes sense. Where he 
is able to hone in in a uh, where there's art and science to this of kind of the right details to be pressing on or to you know going to a location at, at Disneyland and a hotel that's about to open in 20 days and evaluating you know the work that's being done you know whether the they're making the right decisions at this micro level and being able to kind of elevate that to a, to a macro level um you know, he was just incredible at at um you know having those types of unique insights and drilling deep where it was needed and and knowing where that uh you know that was necessary and you know when someone was doing a phenomenal job and had rolled out you know 10 you know hotels in a row that were you know 10 out of 10s that person would you know have you know full autonomy to to kind of go and continue to to do the amazing work that they were doing but he knew when to you know when to jump in you know when management was kind of needed and when it was better to have more of a kind of hands-off approach meaning that the person that comes that that is proven themselves over and over and over again most likely because they are paying attention to the details, doing the little things right. They're given a lot more autonomy than somebody that maybe doesn't have that track record. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And and maybe this kind of broadens up just to like the, you know, what makes great customer experience. You know, Michael talks about this in, in uh, some of his speeches he gives where he believes, and I, I think this really rings true for me, that, you know, brands, great brands are like pointless paintings where it's all about these little details. And you could have a detail or two that's, you know, smidge and is, is wrong. And, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the painting, it's not going to ruin, you know, the overall painting. But it's all of those little details that make up, you know, this grand masterpiece that is a brand. Um, so the importance of details is critically necessary when you're talking about something like customer experience and a brand that's going to really resonate with people. And, if you have the right attention to those details, uh, everything else kind of follows. That's something I really you know, learned in spades from, from Michael. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. I remember we, when we spoke over the phone, you mentioned that analogy or that metaphor, and it makes a ton of sense. To your, to your point, you can have one of the details off. It's still not going to change what the, the painting looks like from a distance. But if you mess up a whole bunch of them, then yeah, it could compromise what the overall, what it would look like. Curious, uh, you know, your time at Toronto, eight years nowadays is like 30 years back, <laughs> back in the day. So who spends eight years anywhere? And, and then on top of that, working with somebody like Michael Eisner, curious, from that experience, what did you take? Because obviously you had you know, gotten your chops with Disney and, and with the acquisition of Pixar and, and other things as part of the strategic planning arm. And then he had enough faith in you to bring you over to Toronto. Now, was he, was he head of that or what was your, and what was your role there? I mean, you were head of acquisitions. I know that, but talk a little bit about what you did on a day-to-day basis and what were some of the, the major acquisitions that you made? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so Michael, uh, you know, was the CEO at, at Tornante. It was, you know, fully kind of his investment company, you know, with him as the the sole LP. We had a number of partners in, in different uh, investments and, and acquisitions that we did. And I was head of investments. So most of my role was, you know, sourcing and kind of looking for new interesting opportunities in the media and kind of cons- consumer space because we focused on a you know on an on a sector kind of like media and consumer 
we felt that that meant strategically we needed to look broadly at, at different size opportunities. Uh, so there are different strategies on the investment side. You know, a lot of you know venture capitalists are, are very generally broad, but maybe stage, uh, you know, similar. You know, we kind of took that opposite approach of you know we were narrow in, in what we uh, looked at, uh, but broad in the in the size and scope of things we would do. Uh, so on a day-to-day basis, that could mean, you know, looking at, uh, you know, a number of interesting early disruptive companies, you know, we invested in, uh, you know, a variety of really interesting digital media companies, uh, you know, from Click Media, which is one of the leading uh, women's media companies to uh, a company called Little Star, which was a you know, large aggregator of VR and, and AR content, you know, to also looking, you know, broadly at, uh, you know, public markets, uh, you know, we invested uh, early on in Netflix, um, and that was a big part of this wave of over-the-top television. You know, this streaming cord-cutting wave that we now see is you know 40 million households you know no longer have right. pay TV. When I was at Disney and Comcast, I made a hostile bid to acquire Disney right as I started. Uh, there was no such thing as cord-cutting. You know, every person needed pay television. Internet was a smaller subset of of subscribers than than uh, pay television was. You know, you fast forward to uh, today and now 40 million households, you know, no longer have cable television. Uh, 5.5 just left last year. And, you know, a big part of, you know, what got me excited about Wander was, you know, seeing some of these trends, investing in Netflix early, seeing the innovation that was happening in direct consumer streaming video, uh, and also seeing a a space and industry that when Comcast had made that hostile bid to acquire or to uh, look to acquire Disney, they were the lowest rated industry in America at the time. <laughs> and that's, yeah, it is the same 15 years later. Right, hasn't changed. Uh, and, and actually in back in 2004, they were rated lower than the IRS in customer satisfaction. <laughs> and what I've, you know, also kind of seen from a investor standpoint is you see that in industries where customers have been a second thought, uh, it leaves this foundation of, you know, just deep seated customer uh, dissatisfaction. And some of it isn't even, you know, that apparent at times because we're just so used to being treated terribly by an Internet service mm-hmm. provider. Um, yeah, I, I think that the the taxi experience kind of before, you know, Uber and, and Lyft, I think, helped push innovation there, but that experience had gotten very, you know, tired and, and, um, uh, you know, I think it shows with Lyft and Uber now having massively increased the market because people want to travel in, uh, in taxis much more often because it's a much better experience. So we see like an industry like the ISP industry that hasn't innovated for consumers, uh, has just been, you know, kind of eking out bigger and bigger price tags as the perfect foundation for building a truly disruptive and, and beloved consumer brand you know one that you know builds you know transparency in the core of what we do uh, customer experience at, at the heart of how we're thinking about our product and with streaming you know we have an advantage too with it, where there's a shift in the marketplace a, a really transformative shift and we can design a product kind of from the ground up for that streaming consumer and that's that's really exciting to me and and why I, 
uh, you know, even though I had had an amazing you know role at, at Tornante and and loved everything I was doing there, you know, jumped at the chance to to go and do something really interesting here. Yeah, and if you follow the breadcrumbs of your career, there's so many different components. A beloved company like Disney, a company that focuses on the details. Then you look at all of the experience that you had where you were sort of wrapped up in this potential hostile takeover and you got to see what that whole experience was like. The cord cutting component of everything that's been happening over the last decade and recognizing that there was a need or a gap in the market. Let's dive in and talk a little bit about the service that Wander offers, which let me just say that it's so inspiring to see the work that you're doing because one, you just mentioned a minute ago that we kind of accept certain companies. It's they're going to offer crappy customer service because that's all we've ever been used to. And you're really trying to flip the script in that world and offer something that's not only more affordable, but really thinks about it from a customer centric focus. And that's inspiring because you're, you're offering something that consumers haven't really ever had. So why don't you share a little bit about the service and maybe talk a little bit about where you're at right now and sort of the, the long-term vision of where you're taking it. Yeah, totally. You know, I was one of those consumers that was just kind of stuck in the bad marriage that is, uh, you know, an ISP uh, contract and hadn't thought that much about it um, until the net neutrality repeal started to take shape, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, and that was just a inspiring point for me out of deep frustration came some inspiration and had seen those trends, as I had mentioned, that gave me an insight that maybe there was an opening here. You know, these are companies that are you know, very large scale, you know, near monopolies um, in the markets that they operate. There's a reason kind of for that position. Uh, but those trends kind of gave me uh, some some instincts that it was worth exploring further. So I did nights and weekends really studying the hi- the history of the industry, you know, looking at things from even the dot-com bubble era of like Windstar and some of these, you know, innovative, maybe too, too early um uh, companies, you know, Google Fiber, you know, rolling out and uh, and saw this opportunity for, you know, Wander to be a customer centric, customer first brand um, that positions ourselves on kind of three key areas. One is affordability, uh, two is transparency, and, and three is breakthrough customer experience. So on affordability, you know, Wander is $25 a month for no contracts, high speed internet, uh, it's a third the price of the average across the country for high-speed internet, and uh, you know what's important there is we we actually looked and really dug into the data of like what was consumer usage like. Your biggest bandwidth usage is streaming Netflix and you know doing all of your streaming needs at home. That takes far and away the most usage. Not you know sending emails or using Facebook. Uh, so the average consumer at peak hours of the day, so when they are sitting at home streaming Netflix, are using about five megabits per second. But we're being told by the ISPs that you know we need a hundred, we need two hundred, and you know within a year we'll need you know gigabit speed to the home. Well, the data is just not showing that at all. Um, where most companies continue to position themselves, even the competitors to Comcast and Spectrum, are kind of positioning themselves on speed, right. as opposed to looking at you know what is the data saying and what do consumers actually need, and is there an opportunity to go and offer something that's compelling, um, that's 
exactly what the customer needs or the vast majority may not be uh, right for for every consumer. But we think the vast majority of consumers are paying for far more speed than they need. Um, and Wander is designed to be a package that can suit their needs. And so the second component of, um, of the brand is all about transparency. So we do that in a few ways right off the bat. So one is around pricing, no contracts, you know, some of the things that are kind of more overt and, and, and obvious. Um, just as importantly, you know, we've put from day one in the customer dashboard uh, the data usage of that customer. So aggregate data, you know, peak megabits per second, average megabits per second. Um, no other internet service provider is doing that. If you have some of the higher end routers, you know that you can see that from a Google Wi-Fi or an Eero. But the internet provider isn't showing right. that because if they were, you would see that you know on average you're using that five megabits. Right, per second. If that's their selling point, and you're not actually using it. Because I know I was sold that you know more more speed, more speed, and you pay more for it. But it sounds to me like your research. And, and not even your own research, but the research that you found shows that people are using far less, yeah. even with a thing like Netflix, because that would be the immediate thing I would think, like streaming or something like that. Yeah, so streaming, uh, it's interesting. I'll, I'll ask you a question. What do you think the average Netflix stream requires in HD to your, your TV? I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, but it, I mean, I know that it's... I would guess that it's lower than what I think because you're asking that question. It's, it's uh, three to four megabits per second. Wow, okay. And then they get efficiencies as you're streaming more. So it's not like it's just like you multiply that, you know, by the number of devices. But, you know, 4K is now 15 megabits per second. But, you know, when you talk about you know, needing force 4K streams around a house, you know, then you're starting to, you know, dip into packages that um, might be larger than what we're offering today. And that's the today piece is an important part of it, where when we rolled out this transparent data, we like the idea of having one clean, simple marketing message, you know, one package, it's a flat fee. But over time, as, as consumer demands show that there is a need for more speed, we'll open up new packages, but we want to do that to customers that have those needs. So the way we can do that is by showing it transparently to you. And saying, look, you're actually in the top 10% of our users and, you know, we're opening up a new package that mm -hmm. is going to be a little bit more. And, and, you know, we think that that suits your needs really well. And there's evidence that it, shoot, it suits your needs as opposed to, uh, um, you know, just trust us, you need more speed. Right. Uh, and we'd love to do that on the, on the low end as well, where you know, there's plenty of users who are using a tiny, tiny fraction. They're not at that even five megabits per second. So let us save you some money because you're not using our network, you know, to the level of most of the other customers. So, so it's not necessarily a limitation on, you know, what you can offer in terms of your service. It's more like you're optimizing it to the needs of the customer based upon the data and the dashboard that they themselves have access to. I want to talk a little bit about the network and the service itself and how it all sure. works. Cause I think for somebody listening to this that may not understand like how Wander actually works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the other, so I've talked a lot about the streaming trend that was really influential in, in Wander's development. The second really influential one uh, that enabled it from a technology standpoint was wireless technology uh, reaching a tipping point uh, just a few years ago with uh, millimeter wave is something that people may have heard about through some of the 5G wireless development. 
uh, Wi-Fi 802.11ac, um, which is the latest standard, uh, the newest standard that's just started to roll out has now been rebranded Wi-Fi 6. But with AC and with millimeter wave, you're now getting gigabit speeds. So significant bandwidth, broadband-like speeds that can be distributed to lots of people that you could do over what's referred to as that last mile. So what Comcast and Spectrum have for so long, you know, have that monopolistic control over was the end wire that goes to your home or your apartment building. Mm -hmm. There's actually lots of fiber that sits in major roads. You know, fiber is very widely available. It's really expensive to take it from that major road to every single endpoint. Mm -hmm. And Comcast and Spectrum have, you know, spent that significant amount of money to do it over, you know, a number of decades. Well, wireless is now enabling you to go that last mile, that pull to each home uh, from the apartment. from the from the fiber optic well, kind of under the road sort of thing. That's the, the center point, which everyone or you know anyone that wants to get access to can get access to that. Yes, to that so their part. individual building. Right. You know, they they could they could go and and look to do that. So what we saw was this ability to build a f- hybrid fiber and wireless last mile network. So we have partners and part of the unique model that we've gone after is we partner with real estate owners uh, in this world where wireless is now an important part of that last mile. Rooftops become very critical to how we distribute uh, our network. And so we partner with real estate owners that give us access to that valuable rooftop real estate. And in exchange, they get a revenue share for the value that they're contributing to our network. Uh, and so we've been, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're early in the company's development, but we've done a lot of uh, partnerships now. You know, we have a couple hundred uh, buildings kind of in the pipeline of, uh, uh, of partnerships that we're rolling out. And from the um, building owner side, you know, they have this new revenue stream, which is exciting for them. Uh, they're able to offer to their residents an affordable internet product, uh, you know, that's a third of what, you know, they're, they're currently being offered. Uh, and, you know, we're able to also get a significant coverage area out of these partnerships. So that building opens up other people that we can deliver our wireless service to in the surrounding area. You're going up against some major players here. This is definitely the David and Goliath (laughs) story, right? And your name just so happens to be David. So I, the irony doesn't, uh, (laughs) doesn't escape me, but curious, you know, when did you have the insight to start the company? I mean, you had all these, as I mentioned, these breadcrumbs and all these experiences. Can you think back to like a moment where it clicked and then you started, I know you said you started researching and spending nights and weekends. When did, when was the first time you thought I can actually maybe create my own internet service provider? That's, that's a pretty big audacious goal and dream. How did that dream come to be? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I, I feel like, you know, luck has, has a big role to play in, uh, you know, in, in kind of everything that I've experienced kind of in, in my career and the way I view luck is a, is a little bit differently than, you know, kind of the idea that uh, it's where, um, you know, opportunity, uh, you know, meets preparation. Um, I think it's a, it's a little bit more uh, kind of serendipitous than that, uh, where it's truly something that's kind of outside of, you know, your control uh, that enters your orbit. And you have kind of the instinct that, wait, this is something I should really pay attention to. And you dig into it a bit more. 
Um, and that was kind of what happened, you know, with me with Wander. Uh, it truly was reading about the net neutrality repeal and seeing um, that so much innovation uh, that had happened over the you know the previous couple decades, um, you know, was you know, vastly benefited from net neutrality uh, having been in existence. And with that being repealed, all this power was going to companies that I really didn't have a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, love for, uh, to put it kindly. Um, and it inspired me to, to kind of look and, and see, you know, this is something I've, I've kind of done as, as, a, as an analyst and as someone you know, that's intellectually curious my whole career. It started off as, well, you know, is this something that could be fixed? You know, is there an opportunity to kind of look at a better model? And I set off to you know do my research and do my homework and my background you know that that's you know pretty uh, you know pretty typical to to want to go and and kind of research and get pretty analytical on not just all right this is an inspiring starting off point but this is a massive industry with big players who have been there for a while and know what they're doing and I want to make sure that that uh, you know while this is a a big swing this is something that. You know, we feel like yeah, there's a path to to really doing something special with. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up research because literally that was that was <laughs> directly where I was going. But before we get into the research and the homework, let's talk net neutrality because sure. for those that aren't well aware of what that meant and what the repeal then means, can you talk a little bit about how that had an impact, especially giving so much favoritism to the major providers? Yeah, so just uh, you know, I feel like net neutrality is is not that well understood. Right. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of the uh, you know surveys of average Americans, you know, it's crazy high the percentage of people who are in favor of net neutrality. Um, but I don't know that the percentage uh, you know of people who you know kind of deeply understand what that means uh, you know is, is is quite as high. Um, you know, at its core, it enables the internet service provider, you know, to prioritize, you know, different traffic. And that may not end up resulting in the customer directly paying Comcast or Spectrum more money, but it will at the end of the day, because what they're going to then do is, you know, they're able to charge for priority access to the Netflixes of the world or Facebooks of the world, or more importantly, the Netflix and Facebook, the future Netflix and Facebooks. And what, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of appreciated, you know, from the beginning was look, Facebook and, you know, these, these really innovative YouTube, like all of these companies, they're building on an open architecture of the internet. And just be, you know, if they had, you know, a dollar in their bank account, and someone was interested in what they were doing, people could could see it, you know, that it wasn't buffered, it wasn't, you know, not working. There wasn't a YouTube competitor that Comcast spun up the next day and funded with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, something that they could prioritize and do that legally. Um, so hopefully that kind of clarifies maybe a little bit more, you know, visually what that, what that meant. And um, it would end up leading to those companies taking a bigger piece of the pie and likely making your Netflix bill go up, your Disney Plus bill go up. and Because they're paying a premium themselves to get that, that yes. access. Yes, exactly. It, it, it trickles down to the consumer. If somebody else has to pay more for better access, then ultimately the consumers pay the price. And it, it creates these, you know, kind of central, you know, chokeholds on, you know, access to, you know, whatever information and, you know, they're, de- they're determining not necessarily who the, you know, the best 
you know, video, uh, you know, portal is, but whoever's paying them the most money. Um, so that's, um, that, that was something that seemed problematic to me from a innovation, you know, perspective for, uh, you know, for the long term, and, um, you know, consumers have, you know, really been up in arms around it. And it's great that, you know, states are, are doing their kind of work to fight, um, back on the net neutrality repeal. Um, so it isn't something that's gone in as pervasively as, as it seemed that it might at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, we're strong believers in net neutrality. Everything we do is net neutral, always will be. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not something we'd ever compromise on. Yeah, no, and I love that you're uncompromising with your ideals and your values, and it's something that's core and fundamental to the way in which you operate. Speaking of the way in which you operate, you already mentioned the homework side of how you go about doing business or thinking about how you're going to do business. Curious where that came from. Obviously, you know, you you went to Harvard, studied econ there, and then as we already talked about, you ended up at Disney. And clearly as part of your role as an analyst, you need to do a lot of research. But did you have that research side of you before? When did that develop and why do you think it developed? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, research for me, you know, stems from intellectual curiosity. I mean, if it's an area that uh, you're interested in, um, you know, I'm, I can be endlessly curious and, and can endlessly want to, you know, research and, and you could wander. In. I can watch. <laughs> uh, I can definitely wander. So, um, yeah, that I think it stems from that. And I've I've always in terms of, um, you know, team members and, and, you know, hiring and things that I value intellectual curiosity is, you know, top of that list. I think that, um, you know, having a, a love of learning and, and uncovering, you know, what's going on. It's, it's core to, to really deeply understanding consumers to deeply understanding your product, uh, is digging in and saying, why is this happening? Or, you know, why are people not responding exactly the way we, you know, we anticipated, uh, so yeah, that, that's always been, uh, something of interest to me if it's an area that I, that I like, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, not deeply researching, uh, you know, things that, that I, I don't find into, you know, intellectually, uh, um, that exciting. What's your approach? Cause obviously we, we live in an age where everything is at our fingertips. If we choose to find it, it's somewhere on the internet, but we all know for every bit of data we find in the internet, we could find the opposite viewpoint as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also people that you could talk to and people that have a lot of knowledge. And I'm curious, do you have an approach that you take to research or anything that you think kind of is a guiding principle that you follow when it comes to doing your homework? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, yeah, for me, you know, the best research is, you know, trying to seek out, uh, you know, the best resources, you know, books that are, you know, being recommended by, you know, experts in that area. When, when I first was um, doing the nights and weekends research for Wander, you know, I started trying to find like, who are some of these people who really understand, you know, the, the wireless, you know, internet space. This is not something that, you know, I had spent a ton of time, you know, digging into. Um, at that point, I saw the trends that were happening, but, you know, I wanted to speak to someone who had, had lived and breathed it. And I connected with, you know, an amazing resource, someone who I had, you know, found in you know, some online communities and, you know, and went and, and kind of met with him, got to see his network that he had developed, you know, in, in uh, the Denver area, really trying to hone in on, you know, what are your blind spots? What are the things that you don't have a great understanding of? Who are the experts there? And, 
you know, trying to to sift through, you know, what's a, a valuable resource and, you know, what's, uh, you know, less, you know, less valuable one. Yeah, I think there's there's always a, an art and science to, to how you piece that together. But for something as important as a decision like, you know, leaving a good job to to do a crazy startup was, you know, an area I wanted to, to deeply research and, and talk to experts in a number of areas and uh, make sure I wasn't the only one thinking of screaming the way <laughs> I was thinking of it. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think you you know, you're the one kind of making the the call on, on how all of those elements, uh, you know, come together. How long did you spend researching, as you said, sort of moonlight researching before you did decide to leave your career, your job to become an entrepreneur and start and, you know, run a startup? Like how long did you research before you finally said, okay, I'm ready to actually start this thing? I mean, it was probably you know, at least four or five months, probably growing in intensity, right? It's it's a good sign if, if you're kind of growing in intensity in the, in, okay, like I've uncovered a few things. I'm pretty excited about this. I want to, you know, read more. I want to talk to more people. Uh, so, uh, so that's always a good sign if, if there are people out there that are, um, you know, finding inspiration and, and getting more and more inspired as they, they dig in. Yeah, and you, you, the company is um, about almost two year, about a year and nine months or two years old. Yeah, about a year and a half old. Yeah, yeah a year and a half old. Yeah. And what surprised you as an entrepreneur? Because obviously, you've dealt with a lot of companies, researched a lot of companies, found out what's great about them, and part of your job was to find out what's not great about them. Curious, as an entrepreneur now yourself, what's what surprised you about being an entrepreneur? What's been easy? What's been hard? Well, I'd say my like probably my favorite quote about entrepreneurship is is from Mike Tyson, which is everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think that that really speaks to like the entrepreneurial journey, and and as someone who's like comes from more of an analytical strategy background, uh, you've got to uh, you know recognize that there's um, a ton of execution and operational aspects to the business, and. You know, sitting you know, fully in the entrepreneur's seat versus the investor seat I was in before, I have an even deeper appreciation for you know what um, you know, that role kind of entails. And you know, I was I was speaking with you know, a friend earlier about this, but I, I think the the big difference on the entrepreneur side is you know the feedback loop is so rapid uh, that you have to. Um, you've got to make decisions without perfect information, knowing you're going to make, you know, a number of mistakes as you go along, hopefully, you know, fewer, <laughs> as few as possible, but you're going to make them. And the most important thing is not, not making mistakes. It's, you know, recognizing them through feedback and adjusting and course correcting. Mm, I love that. So what is your feedback channel? How do you solicit and, and ask for feedback? And do you have certain people that you go to regularly or is it your customers? And curious, do you still have, um, you know, either Michael Eisner or other people from your previous jobs that have acted as uh, mentors or feedback loops for your current business? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like the, the most valuable feedback is coming, you know, on the ground, you know, for the business in particular. I mean, it's it's talking to customers, it's talking to building partners, it's, you know, being as close to, um, you know, that, that customer as possible. So, you know, I love, you know, doing, you know, customer, you know, surveys with our customers, you know, going and meeting with them, doing, uh, you know, going on shoots when we're doing customer testimonials and, and seeing who our most avid, you know, fans are and, and why. Uh, and that's helped instruct some of our product development. You know, we're 
you know, we're, we're building products now that are informed by those customer needs that, that we were seeing. Uh, and yeah, one advantage on the small scale, you know, kind of entrepreneur side versus like a big scale Disney, you know, I learned this from, you know, from Michael Eisner, you know, you know that the best information is like on the ground. It's with the teams that are having the conversations with whatever partner it is or, you know, dealing with, um, you know, the uh, customers at, you know, stores and at theme parks. And as the CEO of a 100,000 person organization, those aren't the people that you're talking to on a day-to-day basis. And you you need to create systems that enable that information to mm. come up. And that's its own challenge, which I don't have to yet deal with at, you know, at Wander. Because, you know, all of, you know, our team is, you know, sitting here in, in the offices that we're in and we're getting constant feedback all the time. So what's what I found most important is to, you know, try to instill in the team, you know, that same philosophy of, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes, a more serious one than the Mike Tyson one uh, about entrepreneurship, you know, probably the, the value that I um, aspire most to, um, Mark Andreessen um, you know, it said that uh, you want to have strong beliefs loosely held. Mm. Uh, and I think that's critical because you need to run after the ideas that you have and the, the kind of, you know, the mission that you have at that moment or the product that you're trying to launch. But if everyone that you're delivering that product to doesn't like it, um, you know, you shouldn't keep running into that wall. Like you need to adjust, you need to understand why that's happening and be open to that feedback. So, uh, you know, it, it, you know, really trying to empower everyone to, you know, say, look, you guys are are closer to this on a day to day basis than than I will be. So you need to be coming to me and saying, you know, what, I don't, I, I don't think we're we're getting the reaction that that we thought, or you know, this isn't working out exactly as we planned. Yeah. So I I'm fascinated by this this feedback side of the fence because it sounds to me like you you had a lot of firsthand experience watching and observing how. Michael Eisner feels about feedback and ground level feedback, right? Like getting feedback from your customer base, from the people that are closest to the product. And then one of the challenges that, you know, he would have is to create these feedback loops. And and that's something that you're at this point, you have, it's a little bit easier because you're all here within this, within your, your, your headquarters here. Curious as you look currently and you go to find feedback from your current customer base. Um, do you feel like you're getting enough feedback today? And what have you set up so far that has been the, I guess you said a lot of your products that are kind of forthcoming, the the products that are in the pipeline are informed based upon what you're hearing from customers. So what is your current process to gather that feedback? And then what's been the most surprising feedback that you've gotten so far? Yeah, so you know we're we're getting a lot of uh, direct feedback at um, you know we're we're talking to customers at events you know that we're doing uh, you know on the ground in the market you know understanding what are the things that um, yeah what's making them sign up for Wander that that day what's making them you know hesitate uh, yeah, so we're learning a lot from you know actual you know marketing efforts and and kind of being out there on the ground talking to potential customers. Uh, and then we're, you know, running, you know, a lot, lots of customer surveys, you know, early customers are, you know, they're alongside on the journey, you know, with us and excited, you know, we've been very fortunate that they're super excited about the mission that we're on. And I think they like us, you know, see an industry that really needs, you know, kind of new, 
you know, new players and people who are thinking about the space differently. Uh, and they've been you know very willing and, and able to, to kind of help give us feedback and tell us what we're doing well, tell us what, you know, we can improve upon. Um, and like, you know, like everything, I, I feel like I, I've said this, you know, a couple of times now, but I do believe that, yeah, there's art and science in, in everything. So uh, at an early stage, you have less data, right? So, you know, once we're a little further along, you know, we'll have a, a lot more data to help define our decisions. We have a good amount of data now coming in that's that's helpful, but still early. And, you know, we have to have some instincts, too, about, um, you know, what should that product look like? You know, it's not a perfect, you know, analogy, uh, but one, you know, one of my, you know, favorite things I, I, you know, I learned from, uh, from Michael was, you know, customers, um, you know, when you show someone a finished film or a finished TV show, it's extremely valuable to hear their feedback. Um, you know, they're going to say that they love it, that they don't like it. And, you know, you might make some really meaningful decisions to recut stuff, you know, based on a finished film. If you show someone, you know, a piece of a film or you ask them about what they'd want to see the next year, that's actually not very helpful. Um, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're going to give you maybe the film that they saw last week that they really liked. Um, and they usually don't go and see that film the next year. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, kind of famously, you know, said that, that he needs to show people, you know, kind of what, you know, his vision of the, of the future. I, I forget the, that exact quote right now, but, um, so there's this, you know, this balance between art and science. And as a team, you know, we have a vision for where we see um, the streaming consumer market going um, and what's missing there and you know, what can be improved and how we can play a role in it. Um, and we also want to get customers input on, you know, is that vision aligning with some of the data that we're seeing? And um, you know, so far, you know, it's been, uh, you know, been pretty promising there. Yeah, no, I'm super fascinated by the insight of showing somebody a film that's sort of unfinished versus showing them a more finished film. Um, curious how the, how you found, I mean, right now, do you, do you see the product that you offer as finished or do you feel like it's, it's still developing because I, you know, I know that right now you're you're um there you're in specific markets that i know santa monica and san fernando valley and that you're expanding into into other markets and, and maybe there are more already um but the service itself i mean one so competitively priced that i'm sure any market that you're in it's kind of a no-brainer why wouldn't somebody choose to do this i look at it now and i'm paying like you know, four times what you're charging. So I'm curious, like, is the product finished in your mind right now or is it still developing? Well, definitely still developing. And I, that's why the the content analogy, I think, is imperfect in, in here because, you know, what we can get in front of consumers today is, uh, is something that's complete today, right? It's not piecemeal. It's something that, that it's functional. Uh, it's it's functional. It's um, you know the the service itself is extremely reliable. Like we delivered on that um, initial product, but we see um, a lot that we can do beyond just delivering high quality internet service. And we think that there are lots of consumers who look at the streaming world and say, "There's now 300 different streaming services and a new one coming out every week." There's a lot of confusion. I mean, I know Netflix, I know Disney Plus, uh, you know, maybe I know a few others. 
Um, it's starting to seem like it's going to be expensive to get all the content that I want. I don't quite know, um, you know, what are the, um, you know, what are the ways that I can cut the cord fully? So maybe to dive into that just a little bit more, I think it'll get closer to what, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. There's 40 million households that have already cut the cord. That means they don't have pay TV. They've Mm -hmm. already cut that. There's no cable going to their house. There's no, yeah, they just have internet. And the vast majority of our early customers were already cord cutters. So we're just providing them a, you know, reliable, much better experience, you know, internet for, you know, $500 a year less. uh, And they're excited about, you know, that proposition. But they've done probably the harder, you know, thing of cutting the cord and figuring out how to replace their pay TV needs in a new streaming world. Well, our strong belief here, and the data seems to be supporting this, you know, five and a half million households, you know, just cut the cord last year. It's accelerating versus the 3 million the year before, um, that there's a lot of people sitting on that edge mm-hmm. that say, I'm really interested in saving not just $500 a year, but thousands of dollars when you cut your whole pay TV bundle, you know, down significantly. How can I do that? You know, or, or, I've been waiting to look into how I replace some of the sports that I watch or, you know, local channels. And I just don't, I haven't spent the time digging into it. And we've talked to a lot of people at events who have said this to us, right? That, um, you know, they've started the investigation. They're just not, you know, you know, quite there yet. So we believe Wander can be at the center of um, that guide to the streaming world, you know, being a part of, um, helping those consumers not just save money on their internet, but actually be part of, you know, enhancing the streaming experience and bringing them kind of the best content, uh, you know, for their needs. And, and that's a, a bit of where we're, we're kind of going with, uh, you know, with the product. Yeah. And curious, do you have a, a, a sort of um, common misconceptions or roadblocks that you face? Cause you're kind of inventing a category in a sense. Yes, it exists, but it's a, it's a new subsection of an existing category. And so, you know, I was in solar and it was very challenging at first just to make people realize that it's not, it's not something that's too good to be true. It really is this amazing. And when you go to somebody and you say, Hey, I get you internet for 25 bucks. It's going to give you plenty of speed and you're, you're going to get customer service like you've never had it before. We actually care about our customers. We want your feedback. Somebody's going to say, well, well, this sounds too good to be true. So curious how you handle that. I know you've done some marketing. It sounds like some grassroots marketing and events and things of that nature. What's, what's your approach to overcome those objections? And then maybe along with that, like what is some of the approaches that you're taking from a marketing perspective to get the word out? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, we, I would say the number one thing that we do encounter is this seems too good to be true. Uh, and we've, you know, we had, uh, we just went and filmed a few, you know, customer testimonials with some of our most passionate customers. And one of them had, you know, rescheduled his appointment with us a few times. Uh, Cause he kept saying, ah, oh, like, I don't know, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure about, you know, and, and then he continued to read more and more. Uh, Nobody wants know, to mess with their internet, man. They're scared. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, for us, you know, a big part of our strategy early on was not to go and kind of, you know, blast that Wander is is now available, uh, you know, all over, uh, you know, the city or even all over Santa Monica. You know, we're trying to build this up in a more uh, grassroots, community driven um, and word of mouth way. 
one advantage we have is you know some of these building partners and um, getting to work closely with them and their property managers and you know be front and center when a, a new tenant moves into a building and you know be there at that kind of point of sale. Um, but we've done uh, you know quite a bit to you know really put ourselves in the conversation you know in those communities. And it was important to me, and I think we've now done this now that you know we've been you know we launched. We did the official launch in, in late October, so we've been out there now for you know for almost four months, and we knew we'd have to build our reputation online. We'd have to have you know a number of reviews, you know that you know, start to come in and talk about the experience, and not someone who set it up you know you know yesterday and you know yeah. sees it for one day. Uh, so the reliability, you know, was was a you know kind of a, a core question that you know we think there's now a, a lot of great evidence you know out there that you know we're you know the uh, you know, an unbelievably reliable service. Um, and um, on top of, you know, being one that really cares about the customer, but that takes time. Like you got to build that reputation and dependability and you, you can't just do that overnight. Uh, people have to trust from a trusted source, you know, or from, you know, places that they, uh, you know, that they value online to, to get that information. So I love that you're thinking about this from a perspective of not trying to sort of boil the ocean all at once or go too fast. Because I think all Mm -hmm. too often businesses, especially startups, are like growth at all costs. Let's see how fast we can make this thing grow. And it's not to say that you're, you know, intentionally going ultra slow, but you're it seems a bit more methodical and, as you Mm -hmm. said, a bit more grassroots in your approach. Why did you choose to take that approach? Have you looked at other businesses that have done the same thing? Or what was the insight that allowed you to kind of think about it from that sort of approach? Was it out of necessity or was it more intentional and that you have seen other businesses fail as a result of growing too fast? Yeah, well, I I think that, you know, the the kind of growth at all costs, uh, you know, mentality is is now, you know, pretty quickly falling out of out of favor. Um and I'm not sure, you know, as you know, kind of going back to my investor hat, uh, I'm not sure there was ever really great evidence um, of uh, of many of the biggest, most successful companies having started with kind of a growth at all costs mentality. Uh, you know, some of these like very, you know, uh, you know, we think of like as instant successes like Facebook, uh, you know, started at, at a, you know, one college campus and then expanded to a second college campus and, you know, then expanded to a few more. Uh, you know, wasn't available to all you know users in the U.S., let alone around the globe, for you know at least a, a year or two before uh, or after it had, had initially launched. Um, and that's you know just one example. And you know, I look at at companies like um, you know Airbnb and and uh, you know really exciting um, you know transformative companies that you know had to go and and do a lot of you know grassroots uh you know knocking on doors taking photos of you know apartments and you know the do things that that don't scale to scale uh i've seen evidence of you know kind of my whole uh you know my whole career on the investment side i think part of why that's the case is you know i i kind of try to talk about it as like a as a business in a box that we're building you know in santa monica right now 
And there are a lot of components of our business. There's, you know, the the consumer that we're trying to deliver a value proposition that, you know, that they're excited about. You know, there's the network, you know, performance. There's the technology to continue to, you know, monitor and optimize that network that we've done a, a lot of really interesting uh, proprietary work on. Um, and then there's our, our partner side. You know, we have partners who, you know, we need to make sure that we're delivering for them, not just in revenue, but you know, that that they're not getting, you know, a call from their tenant, you know, who says, I'm leaving your, you know, building and not gonna be paying you rent anymore because I you know, these wander guys are here every day, you know, and, and uh uh yeah, they're you know, they're causing all kinds of issues. So what I think is so powerful about starting in that more building you know, uh, business in a box approach is you're you're learning all of the levers of your business and you're um, working out all of those kinks before you go to a, a larger scale where those kinks will you know absolutely you know blow up I and mean, there'll be kinks multiplied by you know a thousand um, so we're able to really learn a lot early on in the business uh, by doing that and this is a um, you know a massive industry you know that we're we're kind of in so lots of room for you know for growth um and i'm much more interested in in kind of getting at uh you know this deep understanding of the levers of our business and and how we can best serve customers and our building partners and and take that elsewhere once we're uh, once we're ready yeah the business in a box approach allows you to almost have this incubator sort of you're able to tinker and test and do things in a smaller scale where you're not trying to do this wide massive launch where all of a sudden you have everything's multiplied by whatever size you're you're going for if you're going to have this massive sort of uh, all at once approach then if there's one thing that goes wrong all of a sudden it's amplified in a much much larger sense now you're having to deal with potential problems that could affect the customer experience, therefore reputations on the line, all sorts of things could go wrong. Whereas having this sort of business in a box approach allows you to keep it on a much smaller scale and figure out what your business levers are. Curious, I, I want to go back to your time as an investor. And mm -hmm. when you looked at businesses, a lot of the people that listen to this show, they're either business leaders, so they have say in the, the moves that the company they work for are making or they are they are an, an entrepreneur themselves and i'm curious when you looked at companies maybe if you give me a couple things that stand out as, as some of the insights that you had for companies that were very successful what they were doing well if there was some thematic elements that seemed consistent like i looked at all you know out of all these companies I looked at there was these primary themes that stand out for companies that are doing things the right way. And then we'll, we'll, we'll flip that and talk about maybe some mistakes that you see entrepreneurs or companies make that perhaps made them less of the type of company you were open to investing in. Yeah. So two things, I mean, you know, obviously kind of at a higher level, you know, you know, it was a little harder to, to kind of, you know, think about, and we played at different stages of, of companies. So some from kind of earlier to later stage, but two general, you know, kind of ideas that I think are, are important. One is about kind of unique insight or you know, unique approaches to the problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, you know, right now there's a lot of, you know, capital out there. Um, you know, you'll see a successful business, you know, start up and, you know, a, a few, uh, you know, fast followers kind of come after it. 
Uh, so do you have something that's kind of truly a unique insight? Uh, you know, does that fit with the strategy that, that you've kind of developed around, you know, the marketplace? Um, and yeah, we're, you know, we were always looking for, you know, people that, you know, were building something that, um, you know, that, that had that unique quality. I mean, in, in, uh, um, and it's it's a hard thing to necessarily kind of put a, a fine point on without a specific example, um, but having a, that uh, perspective that's differentiated either in strategy, either in the the type of um, you know kind of media or content that you are putting out, and and kind of the the reason for that. Uh, so that that's you know one thing more. On Do you the mean strategic. first to market or creation of a category or what? What I mean, I know it's hard to. You could give me a specific without telling me the company name, but is that? Do you mean more like they are within a within a, 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 a you know a, within a um, an industry they are kind of carving out a new path or maybe give me a little bit more on what kind of what what you mean in that realm well maybe yeah i think there's kind of like this this idea oftentimes that like you want to you want to be the the best at something or i actually think you want to be unique at something you know so um you don't have yeah yeah, i think that's much more important and it's how are you differentiated from competition uh, or how are you approaching a problem in a unique way um, and even if, you know, you're early and, and you end up being, you know, wrong, um, it was much more interesting for us to, you know, back people that were going after a unique insight, you mm-hmm. know, than something that was, okay, well, we already see that this is working and, you know, and, and you know, we want to, you know, follow along there. Because more often than not, then, you know, none of those businesses end up being as as valuable because of it. Um, so that's more on the the strategy side. And, yeah, you know, as you start to get into, uh, you know, you're you've already made an investment. It's a little easier to see, you know, how the rhythm and speed of execution, you know, is playing out uh, at the early stage. You know, execution and, and how you operate is is you know as important as anything else. And it's a very hard thing to assess uh, as an investor without. Um, you know, really being close to the company, an investor in the company, on the board of that company, and just seeing the cadence at which, you know, the uh, the team is is executing. Uh, you know, they're telling you that X, Y, and Z. You know, they they kind of have lined up, and that's looking good to happen. And X, Y, and Z continues to happen. Yeah, you know, that's that's a a really good sign for for the the long term company success. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. So, you know, unique and how are they differentiating themselves? What else stands out if that's one big insight or one thing that you were looking at? Maybe give one more thing that you would find is is something that, you know, consistently was favorable for a company that you would have interest in potentially investing in. Uh, I mean, well, we were always biased towards, you know, kind of consumer, you know, brands, everything we looked at was on the consumer side. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, with brands, it comes back to some of what we talked about earlier, just about the, you know, that attention to detail, uh, you know, and, and there's much more art in the evaluation of this than, than there is science, but it's looking at, you know, how, um, you know, how have they thought through, you know, their, yeah, the the look and feel of their brand like how you know what is their voice like you know how are they um 
you know, how, how are they thinking about, you know, their customers, um, and, you know, seeing what the, the customer feedback is, you know, maybe some of that's just evaluating how, you know, a digital media company is, you know, consumers are engaging, you know, with their content online to, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a different, you know, consumer technology company, you know, really seeing how, uh, you know, their, their partners are, uh, you know, are, uh, you know, what's the level of excitement over the product that they're delivering. Got it. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. So looking back to the details, those details ultimately inform um, sort of what the overall perception of the brand is, what the customer experience is, and, and then getting that feedback from the customers all play a role in how you ultimately decide if it's the type of company that would be a good fit as an, as an investment. Curious if we look at maybe some pitfalls or some mistakes that, you, that you've that you seen entrepreneurs make or businesses make that stand out. Because let's face it, we live in a world where it's very easy for companies to fail. And if, if a, somebody listening to this show could learn from maybe something that you've observed, uh, I think that would be valuable for them to, to hear. So maybe what would be some things that stand out as pitfalls or mistakes that you see companies or entrepreneurs make? Yeah. So in terms of, um, you know, pitfalls, I think it's, it's critically important to, um, kind of have a, um, you know, a view towards the future and where, you know, technology in particular in your space is, is headed. Um, yeah, there can oftentimes, you know, in retrospect be, you know, very obvious, you know, shifts that are happening. Um, you know, we kind of saw this in, in gaming, you know, back in, you know, the days of Zynga where kind of social gaming, you know, was, you know, very much the rage. And, um, uh, you know, there was an obvious shift that was happening towards mobile. Um, in retrospect, that was very obvious that the companies that shifted aggressively there did really well. And the companies that, mm. you know, didn't shift there did not. Um, so paying attention to where things are moving and how technology is going to continue to evolve um, you know, is, is really critical, um, and being heads down and, and kind of thinking about just executing day in and day out. Um, you've got to make time to, you know, elevate and, and think through, you know, some of that as, uh, you know, as well. Um, and, you know, I've, I've also, um, you know, seen, and this goes back a little bit to you know, the conversation about business in a box. And we've seen it, you know, many, many times where, um, you know, having more money to solve a problem, you know, has led to worse outcomes mm. than, you know, a company having, you know, kind of less money to solve uh, a problem. And because of that, they only go in one direction really thoughtfully right. as opposed to, you know, maybe saying, oh, well, you know, we should do that one direction, but we're also going to do this direction too and spend some money here and, um, you know, and focus and, um yeah, yeah, that that uh, strong beliefs kind of loosely held. I think you want to be um, you know, focusing your efforts, um, and uh, it's it's surprising how often you can see that money doesn't correlate to outcome. Uh, that having some you know some constraints because it makes you focus are, mm. are actually quite quite helpful. I love that. I mean, if you think about it, we're 
sort of in this, as an entrepreneur, when you have more money at your disposal, you start to think, well, you need to do more and test more and do all these other things that maybe are distracting you away from kind of the core focus that you should have. And then ultimately that becomes uh, a detriment and not a, not a positive. You, you also spoke about the need to kind of elevate and look more uh, toward the horizon and be more in tune with what's happening within your industry and understanding uh, down the road and having more of a long-term outlook and, and sort of understanding the trends and, and vision for the future. In a moment, we're going to get into the lightning round, but before we do, I just want to make sure we didn't leave any insights on the table. So as you reflect on your life and go back as far as you feel you know, you can really, and, and think about your life and think about those moments where they were, there was something that happened. It was a breakthrough, an epiphany, an aha moment where it, in some way it changed your life. Either you made a 180 degree turn as a result of this insight, or maybe you accelerated what you were doing as a result of this insight. Uh, I wonder if you could share any other insights that stand out that have been monumental in importance in your own life and your own um you know, development as a human being? Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like it, it does come back to that, you know, at least my my concept of what, um, you know, luck is. I've been very fortunate at a number of points in my career to have what felt like, uh, you know, largely outside of my control, you know, someone, uh, you know, suggesting I, you know, look into, uh, um, you know, student government when I was a freshman in high school who, you know, hadn't, you know, thought about that at all. Um, and you know, then going on and, and, um, you know, really, you know, finding, you know, passion for, uh, you know, for that and, in, uh, you know, the rest of high school, um, you know, to, um, you know, having, uh, you know, insights and, and, you know, points in my career where, yeah, with joining Tornante, uh, you know, I had started to see all of this exciting disruption going on and just starting in media. Uh, and one of my ex-colleagues had founded Tornante, you know, with Michael and, um, and you know, he was one of the first people that I, I wanted to talk to about, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think that there's something interesting happening here. You know, what are you guys seeing? And, um, and that led to, well, you know, we're actually seeing exactly what you're seeing. And, you know, we'd love to bring someone on to, uh, you know, to to look at that area with us. Would that be of interest to you? Um, and, you know, uh, complete, you know, luck and good fortune that uh, you know, some of the things I was thinking about really lined up with, with uh, you know, an amazing opportunity and, and recognizing that this was, was something too good to pass up. Um, so keeping an eye out for those um, those opportunities that, that develop. And, you know, we see them now as, as, uh, you know, as a startup on a, you know, weekly basis, there's kind of something interesting that, you know, kind of dangles itself and you've got to have the, um, you know, some of the conviction and, uh, you know, to know, is that, is that a, a carrot that's, that's mm. going to lead to something interesting or, you know, is that something we, you know, we just have to, um, you know, go full speed ahead and, 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 you know, not pay attention to right now. Yeah. I mean, and I think what you're, what I'm hearing right there, especially is that you're sometimes it's something that may seem out of your control. It could be a, somebody mentioned something or say something or put something in front of you, but what you have had is the openness 
to accept those things. And, and you could call it luck or any number of sort of ways that we could describe this phenomenon. But I think in life, we do have doors open or even if it's a crack open um, and that crack open could end up being a door that completely changes your life. Uh, but if you're closed off to those things or not aware enough to recognize those as potential opportunities, you could just go through life and not allow those things to have the impact that they have. So I take it you were in student, student government then? And did I hear what? what I, I was, yes. What, yeah. what, what did you do? Um, I mean, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to claim that the, you know, I was uh, uh, in high school. There was a lot that, that was, uh, you know, instrumental that we did in student government, but, you know, but it was, it was a great experience kind of being a leader kind of in school and, and kind of getting to, you know, work with, uh, you know, the, the administration and kind of seeing the, you know, how, how the school kind of operated, but, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't say that was, you know, the, the most transformative experience for me, but, but it was, you know, it, it helped me get a bit more serious and thoughtful about what I wanted to do with my life. And, mm. at yeah, you know, at, you know, what was I 14 or 15? I, you know, I w wasn't yet, you know, thinking too deeply about that. Well, what if that was the difference between you getting into Harvard or not, right? I mean, there's well, there's lots of things that you may or well, may not. It definitely had, a, you know, it definitely had an impact on that. So no, that's that's why it was, you know, it was one of those things that you know I hadn't thought much about, and you know, had someone who I very much considered a mentor and someone who I I kind of looked up to, and who was you know a couple years older and was in student government, and you know, he just kind of you know he he saw something you know in me and and thought it was worth you know me looking into and. Um, yeah, that, that was uh, something I, I gravitated to, but I think you couldn't have said it any better. I, I think that openness to, um, you know, that openness to, to anything, um, and, you know, not, not closing a door or kind of immediately saying, no, that's, that's kind of too crazy or, um, or no, I don't have interest in that. Yeah. Like just giving at least an initial thought. Right. And it may not be a crack door. It may be a sliding door, which I think is appropriate in the case of what we're talking about. Right. Cause it could be that split second where the whole sliding doors phenomenon, it changes your whole life, your whole trajectory. And so I think the message here and the insight here that for anyone listening is do keep yourself open to new things that could have a massive uh, importance to your own to your own life. And so with that, let's get into the lightning round. So this is a series of questions where I'm just going to put you in an emotional state. I'm going to ask you a question. I just want your gut response, your gut reaction. And the first question is, what excites you? What excites me? Uh, you know, I really wake up every day excited to delight customers. I just think that is, you know, the, the piece of our business that has been so rewarding, you know, even in the, you know, the handful of months we've been live with our product, uh, getting to talk to customers who have used Wander, you know, have had, you know, deeply frustrating experiences in the past, um, and to see how much, uh, you know, we're able to delight them with the little touches and the little things we try to do around, you know, the onboarding of customers, you know, having them, you know, access their Wi-Fi network by scanning a QR code and like having oh, right. always, you know, had to find the password and, oh, wait, I can just, you know, now, you know, show this card to my friend who, you know, who answers and can just scan it with a QR code. These little moments are uh, what we constantly seek to uh you know innovate on and and, and add to and I, I love that i totally get that uh, and delighting the customer wowing the customer surprising the customer in a good way 
there's nothing more gratifying, fulfilling as you know, a business owner than making sure the customers react to your product or service in that way. And it's incredibly rewarding. Next question is what scares you? What scares me? Well, I have a, uh, I have an almost two year old son and he pops into mind cause he is constantly terrifying me with, uh, you know, he's, I, I don't pay attention for one second and he's like on the highest daring, ledge huh? and you know, <laughs> jumping off of a couch and, uh, uh, yeah, he, uh, he keeps me on my toes. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Uh, your children and just their safety is, uh, of the utmost importance. And when they potentially jeopardize that, um, being <laughs> consistently, uh, present, uh, it is a frightening thing to say the least. What surprises you? Um, uh, I, I'm constantly surprised at how many surprising things can come up in, in a, in a startup. I mean, just every day there's, there's kind of a new, um, you know, challenge, new opportunity. Uh, and it, it honestly shocks me every day that there's, you know, something that's, that's totally out of, you know, left field, both good and bad, you know, but, uh, but that can, uh, you know, that can, uh, sneak up on you. Yeah. Surprised by the number of surprises. <laughs> I like it. So um, curious books obviously are incredibly insightful in and of themselves. You know, every time anyone reads a book, especially a nonfiction book, there's going to be insights that you glean from that book. What book have you recommended more than any other book and why? Well, so maybe I'll give you two because one's more recent that's been kind of accelerating as one of my most uh, gifted books. Uh, so I, I really love the the CEO within. Um, mm -hmm. It's written by an executive coach and um, just just such a incredibly um, tactical guide to you know leading an organization. Uh, and it's a resource that I'm I'm going back to time and time again, you know, not just, you know, something that I read once. Um, so I've got more notes in that book than, than maybe any other. Uh, and then Never Split the Difference, which is uh, a book by a uh, former FBI hostage negotiator turned uh, brilliant business negotiator. And he has some of these, you know, you talk about insight, you know, the unique insight that they had as hostage negotiators around empathy and, you know, coming at, uh, you know, trying to get to the goal that you have in mind, obviously not what the hostage, you know, the right. hostage taker has in mind. Um, but using kind of empathy and these tools to, um, get to the outcome that you want and doing it in, in a, um, uh, a really surprising and effective way. Uh, it's one of the best books that I've read that for kind of anyone in business and how to better communicate and, um, you know, negotiate. I love both of those. They sound amazing and I have not read either. So I'm, I'm definitely going to pick those up and a huge fan of the power of empathy. And it sounds like the, the CEO within is certainly like a handbook for anyone uh, running a company. So very cool. Who is the most inspirational person in your life and why? So on that one, I'm, I'm going to go with, uh, my grandmother, um, you know, she just had the most incredible intellectual curiosity of, of anyone that, that I've, I've ever met. Um, and it's something that I just, I so value, um, you know, she never went to college, but had what seemed like a, like a public library school, you know, or library full of books in her house and was just endlessly reading. Um, you know, so I just, uh, you know, loved learning from her and, and talking to her about the, um, you know, it's kind of, 
every topic under the sun. Love that. Uh, very cool, man. And I'm particularly fond of thinking about our grandparents and the role that they've played in our lives and, you know, parents, grandparents, anyone that sort of helped to mold who we are. It's a fascinating thing to dissect when you look back and you realize all these building blocks that existed as a result of just really modeling the behavior that was put in front of us. It's, it's so fascinating. Um, speaking of fascinating, if you could go back to the Harvard campus, you're, you're 20 years old and you encounter your 20 year old self and you, you could give your 20 year old self some advice. What would you share? If you could tell your 20 year old self anything, what would you, what would you tell yourself? Take more risk earlier. Oh, I love it. Said with authority too. Okay. <laughs> Um, any, 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 uh, anything further than that? So take more risk earlier. Well, I just think that, um, you know, especially like someone who, uh, you know, is going to, you know, ha is caring to go to a, a, a good university and has been academic and, you know, kind of focused on, on that, um, you know, my, my whole, uh, you know, upbringing, um, you know, you, you can get a little bit risk averse, uh, and I think taking, um, you know, taking calculated risks and, um, you know, seeing those opportunities when they emerge, as we talked about before, um, but going after them. Mm, so good. Great advice. <clears throat> okay. So do you have any regrets in life? And if so, what are they? I, you know, I really try to, uh, you know, live without any regret. Um, the only minor, minor regret that I have is I moved to LA too early. Um, you know, I love Los Angeles. I'm definitely very happy to, to be living here with my, you know, my wife and two kids. Um, but I moved out here right after college and never left. And I do love to travel and love experiencing other, other cities. So minor regret is, uh, you know, would have liked to <laughs> live for a few years somewhere else. Maybe. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I've lived in LA my whole life, but I did, I, get a, I did get a chance to live in New York for a bit. And li I lived in London for a bit. And I'm so glad that I got those opportunities. But I would have even liked more of it because as great as LA is, it's, it's still nice, as you said, you know, to travel and see other places. Totally. Um, okay, so you've achieved a lot in your life. You've had some inc incredible experiences. If you could give me one achievement that sort of stands above the rest, what achievement are you most proud of? Well, I hope it's one to come. I mean, I, I really, uh, you know, hope it's something that that continues to be on, on the horizon. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of accomplishments in my life, uh, you know, it, it has to be my, my children so far. I mean, I've got a, a four-year-old and two-year-old and um, yeah, they, they, uh, you know, just make me so proud every day. Of course. Yeah. I, I totally know that feeling. <laughs> so we talked about who inspires you, but we didn't talk about a mentor somebody that really has been a guide for you who stands out as maybe your number one mentor that you've had and what do they teach you? Yeah. I mean, well, we've talked a lot about, you know, my, my time getting to work closely with, uh, you know, with Michael Eisner, um, you know, as, as a mentor, he was, you know, unbelievable. I mean, I was very fortunate to have gotten to learn from, uh, you know, someone that was both extraordinarily creative and, uh, you know, brilliant, uh, with business as well. And that combination is, I think, really unique. Um, so, being able to have a sense of, um, you know, kind of what works creatively and do it in a fiscally kind of responsible and thoughtful way is, is, uh, you know, something that, um, yeah, was, uh, 
yeah, I try to bring to, you know, everything that I, I do. And yeah, that, that group at Disney, you know, I had a number of, you know, really fantastic colleagues, um, when I was there, you know, many of whom I'm still close to many of whom have been mentors kind of my whole career. Uh, so that, you know, getting an experience like that early in my career, um, was, you know, something that has paid dividends yeah. and I'm sure will for, you know, for decades. So, and it's, it's so cool too, that you're still friends and, and still have them in your life. And I, I can relate big time because, you know, when you do encounter people that mean so much to you and have been so important to you, you know, hold on to those people. Ultimately life is about connecting with other humans and, keeping those amazing people in your life for as long as possible is an insight in and of itself. Um, curious if you could spend one hour with anyone living or dead, who would it be and why? Anyone living or dead. Um, you know, I, I, um, I'm always amazed at like the enduring power of, uh, our country. Uh, so getting to spend time with like George Washington or Benjamin Franklin or someone who was kind of there, uh, you know, at the founding of the country, like the insight that they had and the the brilliant way in which, um, you know, they've created an, an enduring, you know, incredible country. If I have to go anywhere in time, you know, probably, probably uh, would go all the way back then. They were, they, were wick, <laughs> they were wicked good at creating a democracy that would last. Um, totally agree with that. So we've learned so much about you, David. What haven't we learned? What might surprise the audience that you, you haven't yet shared? Come on, give me something. Give me something juicy. Uh, well, so I'm a huge music fan. And you know, earlier in my life was, was music blogging for a little while. Okay. Uh, so you know, just a, an avid concert goer and uh, music listener, and uh, yeah, you could you could probably dig up a few uh, no. blog articles if you good if you try. I like it. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, last question I have is sort of open ended. Anything else you'd like to share with the audience? You know, professionals, entrepreneurs, people that want to advance in their career. Anything sort of last uh, last comments from David Fields? Yeah, this is uh, it's been great getting to spend some time with you, Billy. Really enjoyed it. Go out there, take risks. You know, try to do something that's impactful and and uh, you know aligns with you know mission that's that's important to you. And that's uh, you know, if I can leave people with with anything, it's yeah, go and go and try to do something that that you believe in and, and that you're excited to to share with the world. I love it. I don't think I could top that. So all I could say is thank you. It's been an amazing time getting to know you and having this conversation. Thank you for having me uh, at your office and thank you for being on Inside Out. Yeah, thanks, Billy. This has been real fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. Ah, ah, ah,
Yeah. <laughs>